Our scripture reading tonight is 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Stepping out of our sermon series for this one occasion, 1 Peter chapter 1. Our text especially is verse 3, and I was going to have us read from 3 to 9, but I'm going to back us up now to begin at verse 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, and beginning at verse 1, <clears throat> and through to verse 9, with a special emphasis tonight on verse 3. Listen to God's Word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. <clears throat> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Well, every Sunday we gather and we worship God in the light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And every Monday we return to our homes and our jobs and our boss is still demanding and our mailbox is still stuffed with only bills and election flyers. And there's still a war going on in Ukraine. Our loved one is still sick and the kids spilled juice on the couch again. For some of us, all the optimism and joy and delight we have as we gather as God's people on Sundays uh, nearly evaporate when we get to the real world on Monday morning. So my question for us tonight is, is this, what significance, what impact does the resurrection of Jesus Christ have for you or on you uh, tomorrow morning and Thursday afternoon and all the way until we meet again? Why is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is good news for you tomorrow and on Thursday and on Tuesday afternoon as it is each Sunday as we worship Christ. Well, it's no secret we face some difficult challenges around here in the past few weeks. And so tonight I thought I'd bring you back to something you already know, but I suspect you'll do well to hear again. And that is, because 
Christ has been raised from the dead. And in Christ raised from the dead, you have living hope. Hope is a much overused word like faith and love in this sense that it often has in our culture no object some kind of abstract, objectless belief or have hope or love. But there's no such thing really as an abstract, objectless hope just as there's no such thing as an abstract, objectless faith. Hope is more than optimism since it is independent of probabilities as we might have that expressed. It's based on Uh, more than simply the likelihood of future events. It's based on real promises and known outcomes. But hope also has within it that desire for the outcome, that yearning, that longing for what we know is coming. And our text tonight very firmly roots hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead gives you living hope. A hope that enables you to live in the present with a view to the future, but out of God's activity in the past. Hope, you recognize, always does have that future component. You're looking for something that's better than what you have in the present. Our hope is very much grounded in what God has already done. And so to remind you again that because Christ has been raised from the dead and in Christ who is raised from the dead, you have a living hope, and we'll unpack that as we go, I want first to recognize with you that we have hope because of what God did in eternity past, way back before the beginning of time. And in verses 1 and 2, Peter addresses an audience in the early uh, 60s A.D., roughly, and an audience very much like you and, and I, all of us together. Peter calls them God's elect and strangers, exiles in the world, scattered in the towns and villages of Asia Minor. And as he calls them the elect and the diaspora, the exiles, he's not identifying them only or traditionally in the sense of that these are Jews who've been spread out uh, away from Palestine in general or away from Jerusalem in particular. He's speaking to, to Christians who are strangers in the world, who have some sense of dissonance with their environment who are beginning to recognize that this world and its culture as it is dominated by uh, those who are against Christ is really not their home. We are far away from our home country, the new heavens and the new earth, and uh, we are on this journey toward them from here to there. We have, even in this sense of introduction of Peter's letter, we have some, some looking forward to a future. Even as we think about what God has done in eternity past in choosing them in the election, uh, he's already building into that some prospect or hope for a future. 
But notice they are, and we are, God's elect. We're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. That is, God is properly your Father because He has initiated this relationship with you. He has called you to Himself. He has known you and loved you from before the beginning. He called you, he claimed you, he entered into a relationship with you that he has now put into effect not only through his son but by his spirit at work making you alive. And it is his spirit who enters into your life, who sets you apart, sanctifies you, calls you and sets you apart to be holy, a people devoted to God. And again, he does this all, Peter goes on to say, with a purpose, it's to bring you to obedience in Jesus Christ, even as he is cleansing and purifying and and making you whole, sprinkling his blood on you, he's calling you to obedience to Christ. There's all this just swirling around in verses one and two, and it's then he gets to the hope we have because of what God did for us in time. The hope God has given to us, rooted in his actions in real time, 2,000 years ago, but also in your life more recently. Paul moves on in verse 3 to unpack some of this for us. He speaks of God's acting out of great mercy. And that's just really helpful for us to hear because we recognize it was when we were most pitiable, God pitied us. When we were in our sinful, fallen condition, when we deserved nothing but wrath and condemnation, God chose to look at us differently. And that has something, of course, to do with his prior choice or election of us, but he chooses now to look at us differently. He acts toward us with mercy, with compassion, undeserved, unmerited. And as we consider that we're in that sinful, fallen condition, when God comes and acts, when God comes to us in his mercy and compassion, when we think about our condition, it's it reminds us we were utterly unable to do something about our condition. We were unable to bring about the change in status Peter has in view here. We were without resources, without energies, without even the will or the desire to change of ourselves. We couldn't raise ourselves up. We couldn't cultivate in ourselves, a faith, or a hope, or a love. It is when we were totally predisposed to everything contrary to God. When we were destined to death and destruction, what did God do? He gave us new birth, caused us, Peter says, to be born again. And you know that picture, of course, which is not used often in Scripture, but shows up, of course, greatly in the Gospel of John. And here, similarly, Peter is reminding us that uh, what we are and what we have become is entirely because of God's actions. Rooted in His great mercy, 
grounded by his desire and will and choice. But there's just no participation or agency on our part in that initial step. Our new spiritual birth is just as decisive and life-giving as our physical birth. But similarly, we did not anticipate it or participate in it or cooperate in it. Our spiritual birth is like our physical birth. We had nothing to do with that act on our part other than to receive it and to be born. Again, notice this is all still grounded in God's act of his free will, reaching into eternity past to find us, to love us, to set his affection on us, and then out of his great mercy to grant to us that new birth. And God's choice from before time, his great mercy expressed in the new birth, and uh, all this, of course, comes to actual effect in us, in time, because it is also, too, rooted in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. It's because of Christ being alive, having once been dead. It's because of his life we have this new birth. And accordingly, along with that, this living hope. Hope, very simply defined, is a confident expectation in a positive or even in a better outcome or future. Hope implies a degree of longing, of yearning, of wanting and wishing. And a belief of a better and a positive outcome uh, that it's possible even when All the evidence points to the contrary. So if tonight, for example, you were to tell me you are a a Phillies fan and you have hope, I'm going to assume you mean you have hope the Phillies will win the World Series. And someone else might come along and say, well, there's a great deal of evidence to suggest that they won't. You say, well, I still believe. I have hope. I am confident. And all I can say to you tonight is, well, maybe... They might, they might not. Your hope might be rooted in some kind of dream or desire, but it may not actually come true. That may not be, in part because God has not actually revealed to us the outcome of the World Series. Here's what God has done. He's revealed the outcome of his plan of salvation for you in Jesus Christ and raising him from the dead. And therefore, your hope in Christ is living, lively, even inextinguishable. And your hope in Christ is grounded and rooted in reality. I can say to you, unlike any prediction of any game or outcome, of a sporting event, I can say to you, this ends well. Your future is better than your present. And you may even see glimpses of that glorious future in this life before Christ returns. Our hope is not merely acceptance of our present situation. It's not merely a kind of grin and bear it attitude. It's not even a pious optimism all will turn out all right in the end. 
Our hope is a deep conviction about the person of Christ, the present status of Christ, and the return of Christ. Because he lives, we too will live. Because of his resurrection, your sin has been dealt with. And so your living hope looks forward to an unbridled fellowship and communion with God because you are now declared righteous in Christ. Our hope is cemented in the faithfulness and the promises of God. God has demonstrated his trustworthiness to you in fulfilling his chief promise that he would raise his son from the dead, that he would accept his sacrifice on your behalf, that he would elevate him to his right hand to rule and to reign. He would send him back to gather up all those who are looking in faith to him. So your hope isn't just a subjective feeling that wavers from time to time or sometimes is, appears to be even overshadowed by the harshness of your reality. Although that can be true, can't it? But our hope is rooted in Jesus and particularly what God has done for and through and to him for your sakes. God's demonstration of his commitment to his promises on display in raising Christ from the dead, now by his power, guarding and keeping us right to the very end. So our hope anticipates the blessings we'll experience at the revelation of Christ. Because surely they are more than anything else we might hope for or long after in this whole world. Isn't this really precisely what we need. Aren't we who are given this lively hope faced with all kinds of evidence to the contrary? And if this were not enough, Peter will flesh this out for us and give us some sense of the additional objects of our hope in verses four through five. But just to look ahead here a little, he's, he's telling us there's an inheritance for us. And it's an inheritance that will never spoil or perish or fade. It's unlike anything our parents or our grandparents or great-grandparents could ever promise to us or that we might ever receive from them upon their death. This inheritance is indestructible, imperishable. It's guaranteed our possession of it is absolutely assured because it is kept in heaven for us. So is Jesus, of course. But Peter goes on even to add to that, to say, we are being kept for it. We are being preserved by God's power, being shielded and guarded through faith until our salvation is realized through the appearance of our Savior in the flesh. We can see how this is starting to fill out the concept of, of hope and our object of our hope hope that gets us through the day, that gets us through Tuesday and through Thursday, a hope that is rooted in the power and the promises of God, 
longing for the presence of his son. The one who has been raised from the dead and who will just as surely uh, see a future with us that includes our reception of this inheritance he's prepared for us, an inheritance which really is nothing short of Jesus Christ himself together with all of the benefits he's earned and accrued for us. Your hope has substance. It has content. It's rooted in reality, not just in God's future promises, but as those promises are made sure to you because of what he has already done in Jesus Christ. It's especially for Peter here in his resurrection from the dead. Well, how does this hope inform us in, our, in the present? We have some sense of this is rooted in the distant past. We have some sense this is, it comes to expression and fulfillment in real time. But how does this help you uh, this week? You might be sitting there saying, well, this all sounds great. We have some future hope waiting for us way down the road. I still have to go to work tomorrow. Gas prices are still high. Inflation is rising. There is an election looming, or if you're from a different country, it's actually happening right now. Uh, you have uh, loved ones who are sick. How does this living hope shape our lives here and now in the present, in my reality? Well, Paul leaves us, uh, Peter rather, leaves us with three main instructions. The first one is right there in, in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is to get outside of ourselves for a moment or to reorient our direction and to say, we will give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has done all this who gives us reasons for hope, who actually instills hope within us, who has chosen us before the foundations of the world, who has raised Jesus Christ from the dead, who has given us new birth that we might have new eyes to see and lay hold of Christ and all of his great and precious promises, the one who has implanted in us this living hope for the future. Peter says, praise him for all this. From first to last, he is doing this, and it is of his doing. Praise him as you catch glimpses of the future. Even in the middle of your otherwise dreary day, allow the Spirit of Christ to take this word and to remind you of it on Tuesday late morning and on Friday at noon. Remind yourselves and have the Spirit of Christ remind you this is all of God's doing and he has given you a living hope rooted in the reality of the resurrection and that will cause you to thank him. Praise him when your reflection on your heavenly citizenship, when, you're, when this thought of this glorious future reminds you that your present troubles are fleeting and temporary. We didn't get much to this, but uh, notice in 6 through, uh, through 8, 
especially. There's a real sense of life being filled with various trials that are grieving, that are vexing. Praise Him even when there's a a bad diagnosis or a vexing, troubling set of circumstances that really do threaten to overshadow the reality of the resurrection. We'll never want to minimize our problems in this sense, but to recognize, Peter's saying, in this you rejoice. If now for a little while, though now rather for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. But here's the difference. When Peter's urging us to persevere in the face of trials and suffering or even to rejoice through them, and as we notice that there's this recurring theme in the book that our living hope is rooted in the mercy of God and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, all those things themselves help us to interpret our suffering. Suffering is no longer uh, empty or meaningless. It's not to be viewed as punishment or judgment. Because remember, Christ has satisfied God's wrath in his death, in his resurrection. Rather, as Peter says, it's suffering these trials are intended for refinement and for sanctification. As God purifies us, he's making us fit and ready and suitable, even as he continues to foster the longing and the hope for that eternal kingdom. We will inhabit a kingdom of glory, a kingdom of holiness, a kingdom in the presence of our great king. And so to possess a living, lively, unextinguishable hope is to understand that our suffering, as painful, as real, as present, as overpowering even at times it can be, serves a purpose of strengthening our faith, of making us fit for the very thing we hope for. Strengthening our faith, that very instrument by which we are united to Christ, who is our living hope who guards us by his power, who is our inheritance being kept in heaven even as we are being kept for him. And living hope then drives us to praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ even as it helps us to reinterpret our suffering and our trials. But there's one more thing Peter says for us, living hope, our lively hope, ought to shape our living, our holy and alert living. As we live out of our living hope, Peter urges us uh, through this entire book that as we anticipate, as we expect, that we are, we are going to meet God. We are going to meet God and perhaps soon And a living hope means we live our lives out of the values that shape our future life as they are revealed to us in Christ and in the Word, not so much as they are defined by the unbelieving culture around us. 
If you were to read the rest of the book, you'd see how Peter tells us our living or lively hope informs how we relate to bosses and employees or to husbands or to wives or to elders in the church. It, it has everything to do with how we live with everyone around us and how we relate. And that we will live differently. We will be noticeably set apart. Even to the point, Peter says, others will ask you for the reason for the hope that is in you. And you know, as you walk through this world, you sometimes meet people who struggle because they have no hope or they think they have no reason to hope. And then we remember the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. As Christians, you ought to be in the best place to be able to empathize with someone who says, I have no hope. I am hopeless. Less. For a great deal of other people you will meet, they have misplaced hope or false hope. And to some extent, this is still true of us in so many ways. That is, the object of our hope is not the resurrected Christ all the time. And there are plenty of people walking through this world who have all kinds of hopes and all kinds of dreams and all kinds of expectations and desires. But apart from Christ, those hopes will be dashed. And again, as Christians, as you bump into those kind of people, you'll be able to understand that. Because you will understand in any kind of moment of self-reflection that your hope is not always grounded, centered, rooted in Jesus Christ. He's not always the supreme object of your hope and your desire. So what's the solution? If you have no hope, the answer is Christ. If you have misplaced hope, the answer is Christ. In both cases, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that gives one other option. That's you, that's you who Peter says have living hope. Because you're united to the living Christ. This living hope will shape the way you live today, during the week. Do you have, are you living out of this living hope? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the confidence and the joy in the gospel. Thank you for the way you elevate to our minds even tonight and in our hearts the gloriously resurrected Son. Thank you for the lively living hope you've given us. Out of the new birth you have initiated in us. Thank you, Father, that even on a day like today when there are some here who are living in dark circumstances and trials that are grievous and grieving. 
who are for a while recognizing that this is actually testing the genuineness of their faith, where all this can seem at times to even overshadow a sense of hope. Lord, part the clouds. Let them see Jesus. For all of us, Lord, who are tempted to place our hope in something else, redirect us. And for those we know, and we would, the ones we know have no hope at all because they're apart from Christ, we ask, Lord, that you might open their eyes, grant to them the new birth, and grant to them a living hope. Receive our thanks and use this to encourage us throughout the week until we meet again. We pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people say together, Amen.